This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekolodi. Today is the last day of Black History Month. I'm not here to argue that black history should have more time dedicated to it because it does not make sense to limit the recognition of anyone's history to a month, let alone the shortest month of the year. But that's for another episode. Instead, I'm going to introduce you to a family. Mine. I make my own oils. I make my own soap. I'm like, oh my goodness. Our parents were like, why are you going to pay full price for this? You can make this for yourself. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to give it the natural way. And my children now are like... Well, why would we pay for that? <laughs> I'll make it from the herbs ourselves. Do it ourselves. That is my younger sister, Afi, talking about how our parents taught and encouraged us to make our own beauty products. That's what they did. Whatever our individual interests were, they taught us about them, and they encouraged us to go and experience them. It's what their parents did for them. They kept it going for a new generation, as we are doing now with the babies in the family. Today, you're going to hear from my mother, my father, four of my siblings, and four of my cousins. The entire family wasn't available, and we only have an hour for this show, which is good, because we all have the gift of gab and like using it. I hope you enjoy this retrospective on a dynamic family where righteousness, spirit, drive, and a well-timed joke are the only currencies that matter. People ask about my sisters. I like to call them the four elements. Earth, Saida, wind, Janine, fire, Afi, and water, Shade. When people ask about my mother, I call her the solar system. Olufemi A. Colonna, daughter of Howard and Odessa Van Camp, grew up in the Dykeman neighborhood in my favorite borough of New York, Manhattan. Her neighborhood was a safe place to grow up, an ethnic mix of working people. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar lived a few floors above her, and when she was hanging out, she would be chased by the future crooner, Frankie Lyman, who, in his obsession for my mom, always wanted a kiss. Her love of music and the arts extended past her time at Juilliard. She would head out to the East Village to watch musicians and hang out with the purveyors of hip. She talks to me about how she took those experiences in her early life and helped her see the world for what it is. Like this story I love about when she was young and decided to take a bus ride. My grandmother lived in Castonia, North Carolina. I was about 13. I was old enough to go with my friend into town. And so we went. We had to take the bus. I told her, I said, you know, we can sit at the front of the bus now. Because Rosa Parks did her thing. And so my friend was nervous and she said, no, no, we have to sit in the back. Well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. So I sat in the very front. You know, the people got on and the bus driver was telling me that I had to sit in the back and I told him no. So they called the cops. He called the cops. And the people got nervous, got off the bus, and they drove me to my grandmother's house by myself. Hmm. And to show you, it was a small town. Word had gotten to my grandmother and my mother about this, and I was on my way by myself. So they were standing outside waiting for me. Hmm. And I felt triumphant. Hmm. I had this big smile on my face hmm. because I had done what I did. My grandmother and my mother were very upset with me. And I couldn't understand it until they explained to me, 
even though Rosa Parks had done her thing, the people in the South were very slow about this. I mean, it wasn't she did her thing and then people started sitting at the front of the bus. Yeah. It took time. And my grandmother said, you can't do that. You can't do that down here. And she says, and you have to understand that that brings bad things to her. You know, in other words, you know, she has to live there. But they did explain it that it just wasn't one, two, three. And, you know, me coming from New York, I didn't realize that. Yeah, they brought me home. I was the only one on the bus. Did they say anything to you while you were on the bus, or was it just a silent bus ride? Silent bus ride. Sometimes a policy can change quickly, but the culture changes much slower. I remember some of the things growing up. I tell this anecdote to people all the time, but if anybody listening has seen the movie Crooklyn, there's a scene where the kids are sleeping, and mom comes to wake everybody up at what seems to be in the middle of the night. I remember very much on a school night, didn't matter what day it was. No, 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 it wasn't, it was never on a school night. Oh, yes, it was on a school night. I remember one time specifically in the eighth grade where it was a school night and I still had to get up and go to school and make it happen. I remember that. Oh, yes. It was on a weekend. Sometimes on the weekend. Sometimes on the weekend. But, well, I got to tell the people what you did. The situation is this. We would, you know, everybody's, you're given your chores daily, nightly chores. And we would not necessarily be thorough in our accomplishment (laughs) of the chores. Not at all. Let me say. And so you go to sleep, you do your thing, watch your program, and you go to bed, and you're thinking you're fine. And then, boom, door opens, light on, wake up. And it's 2.30 in the morning, and we're here finishing our chores that we did incompletely. But you had a really wonderful technique that used to... At first, okay, it frustrated me, but then I just laughed at it. I'm like, this is absolutely brilliant in teaching us how to be thorough because you would come and you'd be like, you didn't, you didn't take out all of the trash. You have to do that. And look at your room. You didn't put this up. You didn't put that up. But you would go to the parts of my room that were neat and kind of mess them up, too. <laughs> in the, the expression of your frustration, talking about being older and being an adult, I can see it now. Like, I understand now as an adult what you were going through in raising us. So right. I could understand why you did that. But the one thing about it, you know, being woken up at 3 a.m. to finish chores, but you always, always, always gave us a life lecture after we're done with our chores, want to go right back yeah. to bed, but we would make us sit in the living room while, you know, between 25 minutes to an hour, you would give us a lecture on anything about life. So tell me, like, why did you do it that way? And what were you really trying to get across? What life was and your part in life and what you should do. But that was funny because when you saw Crooklyn, and the mother did the same thing, you all went wild. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were like, wow, you're not the only one that does that. Yeah. You know, and that kind of thing. That was, I can remember seeing on your faces. But it's just that I always could think clearly in the middle of the night. Mm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Because it was, it was still, it was quiet. And even though it may seem awful what I did to you all, but I think my love was enhanced more. 
in the middle of the night being able to think and wanting to plan and wanting to make sure that you all were okay. Because if you remember, it wasn't one way. Yeah. You all were also allowed to speak mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to talk. That was a way for me to see where you all were at, you know? Mm -hmm. And of course, you, you all were angry and, you know, wanted to go to bed. But it was a way of seeing where you all were at and what, what you thought. And I would give you my viewpoints. Yeah, yeah. Because as teenagers, you, you tend to get quiet. Mm -hmm. You don't tend to tell your parents everything, so... There was some magic about that. Whenever you would give us that lesson and that lecture, within two weeks, I would see an example of that take place in my own life. This twilight wisdom, this stillness, the quiet of the night wisdom mm -hmm. that you gave to your kids was displayed to me in life. And so whatever lesson you had was firm within me. There was no, hey, I don't know if my mother's right. I don't know if my parents know what they're talking about. No, I was very much a child growing up. Like my parents very well know what they're talking about because they say it and then I watch it take place. My parents talked to me, but I wanted to talk to you all more. And in the middle of the night, you listen. <laughs> <laughs> and it was good to wake you up but I insist it was on the weekends but anyway if we were watching a front line if we were watching something on PBS the news a television show anything if we were listening to a song or listening to the radio you would point out excellence to us and let us know a couple quick historical facts about it but the one thing you did is you let us know it's not just them that you all can do this as well that's right that was, that was the main thing there was nothing to stand in your way so whatever you wanted to do I'm going to help you get there if I can it's wonderful that you all, you all really listened. I mean, this is wonderful what you are doing. The reaction that people have to you. I remember when you used to answer the phone when you were younger, about 11, 12. You didn't answer it in the way that I thought you should. And I would preach to you, you don't answer the phone like that. The way you answered it, yeah, hey, what the... Hmm. And I would take the phone away from you. I wouldn't know who was on the other end. <laughs> yeah. And I'd say, I'd say, call back. And I'd hang up the phone. <laughs> and I'd give you a what to and a wherefore. And then make you answer it again. Yeah. What I was putting into you and your sisters is to be kind. To be understanding. To be polite when you answered the phone or when you were in front of people and anything. And it shows in you. Like me specifically being the only boy in the house. You know, growing up with all these sisters and my mom and the difference than my friends who had brothers and whatnot. Or, I noticed that because you emphasized being kind. You emphasized yeah. being kind. And that's not what my other male friends were getting. You know, right. they were getting this but, toughness that now that, you know, society is demanding that they shed to really express their manhood. It was a little bit different. I'm not going to say it wasn't hard because I was kind of being raised with a view that was contrary to what the world was promoting. You know right. what the world said I should be as a man. 
you know, right. you and Baba gave me a little something different. So I had to come to that on my own. I had to come from where I had come from in my family and confront the world and how it expected me to be and to go through those changes. But that's also what life is like. That's why you go through your 20s and 30s. And when you come to your 40s, you recognize, you know, a little bit more of who you are. You know, your kids are individuals. You know, what did you do to foster our independent spirits in nature? I tried to follow what each kid was like. I tried to enhance what I thought was your thing, let's say. Now, I do remember one thing. I do not believe in an African-American or any minority. I don't believe that it's right for them to go into the armed forces and put their lives in danger for the United States. If, when they come back, they're discriminated against. You put your life on the line for your country, but then you come back and you can't get this job because you're black hmm. or Hispanic. You can't live in this neighborhood because you're, you're a minority, as they say. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make sense to me. And I was not willing to let you put your life on the line for that. Is that so, why is that why whenever I remember 17 years old is the beginning of the Persian Gulf War, Desert Storm. I'm a senior in high school, 1991. The first Bush is attacking. And I remember watching movies like Top Gun and Iron Eagle. And I think I went to you and I was like, I think I want to join the Naval Academy to fly planes. And I remember you saying, OK, you're not allowed to watch TV for two months. <laughs> because you knew I was watching those films, those those yeah. action movies glorifying the war, and you said, "Nope, you're n yep, yep, nope, you're not allowed to watch television for two months until you get this out of your mind." And that's all you said. And I kind of knew what you meant by that. Mm -hmm. But well, before that, though, when you were thirteen, I talked to you about it, and I, I told you I was not buying any more GI Joe toys. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't. Yeah. And so, yeah, because that's the way I felt. And even still, when you were, I guess, around 17 or 18, your father and I were always conscious of if there was a draft that we would send you out of the country. Yeah, I, I remember you all sitting me down and having a conversation. But, you know, your father served. Your father served in... The Korean conflict and in World War II, did he tell you things? No, he didn't discuss stuff like that with me. Hmm. So I don't know what his experience was like. But yeah. you, you just took that view from what you witnessed. Yeah. You know, see, back then, it wasn't like it is now where you go back into history with your family and you learn all the things that happen a lot of times. Your parents didn't want to think about how hard it was for them, and they didn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. That's unfortunate because there's a lot of questions I have now that I would like answered by my parents, but... I mean, look, in a lot of situations, things still aren't talked about. One of the beauties I have is that my parents are willing to talk about these things with us, with me and my siblings, as we get older and come up with questions. So you never said that we had to work twice as hard because we were black. You said we had to achieve because that is the family standard. 
you know, tell me why you approached it that way and why you decided to frame the world to us like that, because that is not what my friends, particularly my African-American friends, that's not what their parents told them. I think one of those things comes from my life. I went to college and I dropped out. And that was one of the biggest mistakes that I ever made in my life. And I was determined that that wasn't going to happen to you all. And so I wanted you all to achieve who you were, not to let any stumbling blocks get in your way. It wasn't because you're black. It was because you're a human being. There's so much out there for you. You have to take advantage of everything that you can. And so that's the way we did it. And to guard you, I mean, I was up at that school if anything went wrong that I felt that wasn't fair. And just letting you all know there's going to be no stumbling blocks here. Oh, yeah. The world is at your fingers and the world is at your feet. My father, Ademola E. Colonna, is a devout follower of the Yoruba faith and African tradition. One of the smartest people I've ever known. I'm serious. Every time I talk to him, I pick up a new word to add to my lexicon. My siblings can attest to that. I got on a call with him, my sister Saida Arika Ekelona, and Afi, she who shall not be last named, and my brother Atif Ekelona, as he told us how he found Yoruba and what it was like to be in school in the 50s and 60s. 66 was when I believe Hamilton and Kwame Ture, Sophie Carmichael at that time, published the Black Power book. And everybody had to deal with the fact that he, they actually said Black Power. It was as shocking then as Black Lives Matter was a few years ago, that you actually say Black and mean it. 67 was when Kwanzaa was developed and it was relating to Africa. Now, before then, I had always been interested in what had happened in slavery. And as I studied history, I would be looking into that, but it wasn't something that was popular to do. If you did that, you didn't talk about it. And this was still, I think it was the end of the light-skinned, dark-skinned days when that made a difference. Good hair, bad hair. Wait, you said the end of those days? Those days aren't done. But it was in 69 that I met Abai Funchalai, Bai Bai Tunu, who had led the uh, Shango Temple in Harlem. I had heard about, but I didn't go. I was, you know, I was in New Jersey. It was like radical. But in July of 1969, uh, we had met in Harlem in the spring, and we went down to the Transitional Year Academy, and I uh, got introduced to the culture, to Yoruba culture, and been in it ever since. Well, now all these years later, I realize that the reason that appealed to me is because when the whole black power thing happened and then people started to think we have Africa, the Africans are valuable people. And they said they, that the white man took our language, he took our name, he took our culture. And I said, I want him back. And it took quite some time, but I did it. I got him back. African can be done anywhere because it really is about character, the vision of the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to do the right thing so that you make things better on the earth. And life goes on. Add to the fullness of life. Don't take away life. You know, you get a period here, and you expect it to make it better and to enjoy it. Because I was on this quest to get my name, 
to get my culture, to get my language back, to look at life as an African rather than uh, in, in America, it changed. And as a result, I have y'all. Because <laughs> if I had had a different attitude back then, it would have been quite different. Because you know that that's the key thing, is that I wanted to have kids and raise them up. I didn't want my kids to have to go through some of the stuff that I had gone through as a child and growing up and seeing the contradictions of racism in America and how you have to endure different kinds of things. And there was an empowerment that was happening as a result of Black people waking up. Well, speaking up, one waking up, they had been woke. It was like uh, paid attention to in a different way. And we paid attention to ourselves. There was also a higher standard of behavior. They still didn't want to make the race look bad, even when you were saying, I'm black and I'm proud. Now that song now, you listen to that song, because what James Brown did, he, it was a powder cake in America, because people didn't know what these people are actually talking about black as if it's positive. There was a lot of tension. And James Brown came out with that song. And I remember when you would be on the bus or something, somebody would have their little radio, and that song would come on. I'm black and I'm proud. It would be something because it made the black people feel so good. And the beat is just wonderful. You know, so it really worked. What was your parents' perspective of like what you were researching and learning? Did you talk to them about it at that time or did you wait? Well, they always knew I was going to, it was something that I was concerned about. I remember in the sixth grade, I used to get in trouble. Well, one day, I must have been in the fall, Mr. Rask, he was the teacher. We had an assignment. There was something in there about slavery in the assignment that we was reading in history or whatever. I remember asking a question. Well, since the white people didn't want the black people here, after the Civil War, why didn't the black people just go back to Africa? You know, nobody, you weren't supposed to ask that. There was tension in the class because I kept insisting that if the white people don't want us here, we should go back to Africa because then we don't have to deal with these people going through all this racism stuff. Me and him got into a little tussle argument. Finally, Mr. Raz, he was the gym teacher and also is a sixth grade teacher, the most popular teacher in the building. Real big, real big guy. And he banged on his desk. That is enough. <clears throat> and I knew I better not say nothing else. And I turned, I was so frustrated and angry. And I turned to the window, look out the window. My seat was right by the window. And I, the tears was coming down my eyes. And after that, I became a problem. As soon as he would turn to a reading lesson, I would start acting out. Eventually, if he was going to teach something where they was reading, I was reading at a 12th grade level and they was reading this book. I wasn't going to put up with it. That's why when y'all would be bad in, in school, I couldn't get too mad at you because I knew what it was. I didn't get thrown out or nothing like that. I say, hold on, you got real mad at me. I don't know, but <laughs> you were being straight lazy. No, I mean, I don't know about lazy, but it was a, it was a bit. <laughs> I was in the, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I needed it though. I'm gonna just say I needed it. I, I just yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. See, because I knew I had seen 
what happens to black boys. And I wasn't going to let that happen. Also, I had to deal with my mother and father. And they knew that because I would ask them and whenever somebody would come up from the South or auntie or, or you know, mother and all of them, when they would come, I would always want to talk to them about uh, slavery and what they remember and uh, about Jim Crow and all that and what was going on down South. They, my parents didn't take me down South. They didn't let me go down South. And so they knew I was authentically interested in, in everything. And so they would give me, yeah, but, you know, just don't get in trouble. Lurleen Floyd, my father's mom, or as I call her, Nana, had a brother, Christian Norman, and two sisters, Evangeline and Kalatha, or as we call them, Aunt V and Aunt K. Now, Aunt K had a son, Kevin, who brought about my cousins, Keisha Toomer Withers and Tanisha Toomer Johnson. We got together to break down the energy that encased us in this cocoon of familial love and responsibility. I want to thank you both for doing this because... You know, I got my radio show podcast out here and Mm -hmm. we cover stuff differently in Black History Month. And I'm like, I am not doing the regular same old every Black History Month. Martin Luther King, Mega Evers, Dr. Malcolm X and something else. And then it's over. I'm like, no, no, no. So my executive producer and I, we were like, yo, let's talk about stories. Let's get stories and let's talk to families. And I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. let's start off with mine because, (laughs) you know, Our family is not normal. No, not by far. (laughs) Yeah. I want to explore that just to show them, okay, black people are all not the same. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, what does it mean to be black now? It don't register to me. I don't know what that is. I just know what it is to be me. And I just know what it is to be a human being. Okay. I feel you. Tanisha. For me, in spite of all that we may face and all that we may go through, I love being black. I love the fact that I'm black. I love the fact that I'm a woman. And I probably, in spite of it all, I wouldn't want it any other way. So I say that to say, I can remember growing up in the 80s, everybody Mm. wanted to say, you know, my grandmother was this or my other person was that. Like they wanted to try to throw another race into the mix in order to like take away from the fact that, okay, you're just 100% black or you're, you know, you're 100% black American. We have to admit and accept the fact that it's there systemically, the things that go on and happen to black people. It's truly there. When you go back to even with us, with slavery as a black Americans, that psychological effect and that effect that it had on us, it's all still there for us to have come to America the way that we've came to go through all that we went through. And at the end of the day, I mean, I know it's not easy and wherever it is that we need to get to, we're nowhere near being 100% there. But the fact that we still keep pushing in spite of anything that was thrown our way, we figure out a way to overcome, to figure it out. You know, y'all have kids. Your kids don't really look at the situation the way we did at all. And that type of blessing for them to not saying that they're free from being subjected to racism at all out there in the world, but the freedom that they can grow up and get their first experience and develop their perceptions of the world free of the binds of, well, you black. So these are your limitations. When you talk to your children, as your children grow and I mean, they're all different ages and whatnot. How old is Stefan? Stefan's 26, 27? He's 27. And I was going to say, even with Stefan, he was like, Ma, you know, sometimes I sit and I think, you know, why? 
why is it that people have their strong opinions and things like that? Mm -hmm. And he said, in America, they set the pace for people to think a certain way about the rest of the world. And it's not until you travel and move around. When he travel, he doesn't do like resort or, you know, a tour guide and all that. He even stay in Airbnbs and get in with the community, learn the people, learn the language, learn the culture. So he get a better understanding, not the pretty fancy up, let me show you all the landmarks type of thing. No, he's getting in there, you know, with the people. So he's like, my, you know, in America, they make everything seem like it's just this and that. He was like, but it's not. And he said, and my thing is, I don't know why a person would ever want to be someplace and it's like abuse to you. Mm -hmm. When you got so many places where you can be and you could just be you. He was talking about riding a bike one night in Germany. He was riding his bike and how he realized, like, when he saw cop cars and stuff, they just passing them. Hmm. Nobody's looking at them. Nobody's slowing down. Nobody's in Germany out of all places. Right. You know what we hear, what we know, the history. Mm hmm. But when do we take the time to experience it for ourselves to know what it is for us mm. instead of what somebody put the label on and say what it is? That's another thing. Uh-huh. Everything is based off of fear. When we talk about what it is to be African-American, what it is to be a woman, a man or whatever, what it is is when you start to look at your mental state and how screwed up. And how much cleaning out we got to do in order to be able to see who we are, understand where we came from, and the energy and the vibration that we put out is what we create. It's not up to other people, but we left that to other people. But what you don't understand is those other people need you. They need you. You don't need them. They need you. It's been a culture of consumerism, buy, buy, mm-hmm. buy, instead of own, own, own. It's been a culture of we need to depend on X, Y, and Z instead of saying, no, no, you don't. It's been a culture of like, I have to wear this name brand, this, or I have to go buy this. We were, you know, in the past, it was like you're taught to just go and just get a good job and, and work hard. No, what I tell my kids is don't work hard, work smart. Hmm. When Nene was 12, because we're two years apart, Nene was 12, I was 14. $100 off of one person, Brayton here. It got to the point, she's 12, I'm 14. Yeah. My mother made up cards. So we already had that entrepreneurship, that thing in us. Mm-hmm. You understand? We already had that in us. So for us to go and do whatever it is that we could do other things, but I'm just pointing that out. Mm-hmm. Being so young, it, it's a lot of little quiches and tanishas out there. As generation goes on and on and on, and hopefully it's getting better and better and better and not worse. I think things are a lot different. Like you talk to your kids along the lines of, owning, like you talk to your kids along the lines of, you know, the same stuff, the same etiquette that I think everybody would teach their children, you know, be on time, be responsible, don't play, you got to this, you got to that. I want to speak to my kids in a different way. I want to speak to them about like, oh, it's not far-fetched. Like, Quadi is more into sports. He has a lot of other talents too. He can probably be just about anything, but he keeps it hitting, like his singing ability, his this is that. Hmm. He keeps it hitting. Like Kiana, 
she's into the drawing. She's into the graphic art. She's into the sketch. If she doesn't have a sketch pad in her hand, she has her iPhone in her hand, drawing stuff, making little movies, making videos. When I tell you she draw these pictures and she just has like papers all over the place of different stories and stuff that she create. Mm-hmm. And then she'll say, when I get older, I want to, I said, stop. You can do it now. I talked to them about, yeah, you probably want to have a job, but the job is just a means of bringing in finances or maybe having health insurance or whatever, or a pension when you go to retire. But that's just a standard, the basic. Then you want multiple sources of income. Being able to flourish a little bit more and do things that in my childhood, I didn't think that I would ever be able to do. Carla, look at your grandfather. He bet on himself, you know? So it's all around us when I talk about that energy, when I talk about that power, when I talk about, you know, people being able to will and manifest whatever it is, is what you focus on. If your grandfather was all over the place, you wouldn't be who you are. Your father wouldn't be who, you know, but he wasn't. He saw something for himself and he built that, he created that. He willed that into his life and not just for him. See, that's the thing. It's not a selfish act because it starts off with you, but it helps so many. We're talking about the history of my family with my dad, Ademola E. Colonna, and some of my siblings, Saida, Afi, and Atif. It was Montclair High School. Now, Montclair is still a wonderful town to live in. At that time, you know, we was all, most of the black people lived in the South End or in the Glenfield area. It was definitely black middle class, you know. I got into the journalism club. The kind of things that put me in, in classes with the white kids. Basically, if you was black in a class like that, you were going to participate. You would not be in there, you know, shying, you see, because black people back then were not expected to participate. If the discussion would be going on and soon enough, they would allow you to agree with them and it would be over. And so if there was actual participation in class, if that was required, then you had to do it. And in, in other classes, and I found that I could participate in the class and made the class get over faster. And it also increased me understanding who these people were, who I had to deal with, who didn't respect me. That was in 11th grade. And they asked me to, if I wanted to run for a student council office. I remember sitting there and I said, well, yeah, I'm going to run for office. Well, which one? Treasurer. Because I was inclined at that time, I wanted to be a businessman, you see. But also because I knew if I ran for president, I would probably lose because the white kids was not going to have no black guy over them. I put together my campaign. I remember making up these little badges and all these little <laughs> the posters and everything and all right, I won. I got more votes than any other candidate. If I had run for president, I would have won. Because the black kids, <laughs> I mean, they really came out for me. You know, of course, I was out there. I used to have people would be wearing my little thing, you know, Ronnie Floyd. <laughs> and it worked. 
Okay, here's the student government rundown. Saida, Janine, and I were class president in high school. Afi should have been, but that was an election that was actually stolen. Just ask our mother. So we did that, and then, you know, I went to college and all that. But I was in that level because I wanted to be, and I could be. I had the support of my family. That's one thing, because there was some... It wasn't always easy because you did have to act white. You had to be comfortable with that because you could not make it phonies because they would not trust you. And I remember they asked me to uh, join cross country. The, the white guys doing cross country at that time was really the elite. But I wanted to smoke cigarettes. So I said, no. You know, the only reason I got asked is because they liked me and or they knew they could talk to me. Around those times, like James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time was a very significant book when we were in high school. And the kids I was, the black kids I was hanging with, you know, my friends was all reading. We was all, that's what we would read, Baldwin. And, you know, we was in the movement. That's what my high school was about. Because uh, now I know like my brother's high school was different because Robert was popular. He was on football team and everything, doing everything you do in high school to have fun, not necessarily studying. But I was known to study. I wanted to study. And uh, I didn't have any regret about that. And there was people like my next door neighbor, our next door neighbor, Reverend Mrs. Catchings, they had leased their house because they went to uh, Singapore or something. He was a missionary. And they leased their house to the Baileys. And the Baileys were both educators or something. I don't know. They took an interest in me. And they offered me a full scholarship to Morehouse. And my parents said no because they did not want me to be in Georgia. At that time, I did not know why I had been the only one of my siblings to never go be sent down south in the summer. And didn't find out till years later that my mother told me, we didn't want you coming back in a box. Because they said you would go down Georgia and talk to them white people as if you was white and they wasn't going to have that. So, you know... (laughs) Do you have cool older cousins? I do. I mean, it was the 1980s and they had all the style and charm you could imagine. Traveling to New Jersey to visit for the holidays are some of my favorite moments as I was just able to be with people who aren't just my family, they're friends. I got on the line with one of my cousins, Paige Walker, currently in Oregon. We talk about those memories and the foundation of love that our grandparents provided for us all. My cousin Paige, my cousin Paige. A lot of times people look at themselves, particularly African-American, they're like, I'm a black person. And that's kind of where their the beginnings of their identity, self-identity start. And that's not necessarily the case with us. It was, you are a human being. You happen to be of African descent, but you are representative of this family first and foremost. And you are going to comport yourself in the world as such. Is that something you kind of felt? Oh, absolutely. There was never a question about that. Yeah. I always had to carry myself with the responsibility of being part of my family. Mm -hmm. 
because that was the expectation that I saw represented for me through my elders and my parents. And that was the expectation that they taught to me. So there was never a time where I thought that I would carry myself in a different way. Yeah. We had expectations. They were clearly communicated. Mm -hmm. And there were responsibilities. And when you didn't meet that responsibility, people were in your face about it. Mm -hmm. It was very clear, but it was not in a hurtful way. It was definitely putting you in check. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. You were put into check. And for a reason that sometimes you didn't always understand, especially as you know, when you go into your teenage years, but when you really reflect on it and you think about how much love that our family gave to us, I never ever felt that anyone ever wanted to do anything to harm me. Mm-hmm. They were doing something to protect me. Mm-hmm. Their passion and the way that they stated things usually was because they were seeing something that I couldn't see and didn't have the words to explain it all to me mm-hmm. in a way that sometimes we try to do more now. So it was no. And yeah. the answer was no. And the time, you know, the way that that was said to me told me a story. Yeah. The no was a complete sentence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> now, like, okay, so you have children. Your children are almost grown now, right? They are. And, you know, in raising your kids, what parts of, let's call it the family crest or family philosophy, what parts of that did you give? Because like you said, there's a different way that we all talk to each other. There's definitely a different way that parents communicate with their children these days. As you're raising your children and you're seeing the type of humans they're developing into, how hard or easy was it to kind of fit in the family philosophy with this new way of parenting, this new way of relating to your kids? Oh, that is such a great question. First of all, I said way more words than were said to me. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing I could tell you, because I did a lot more explaining of things. But I also would say that I kept telling them that how you show up in the world counts. And I started telling them that in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. That was really so that they could understand that they were representing a whole lineage of people when they were carrying our name forward into the world. And they got to see what kinds of things that their father and I did in the community that we were in as we volunteered in their school or we were part of our church community. They saw us standing up and reading the word in front of the congregation. And when they were old enough to do that, and I'm talking like seven or eight, they did it too Mm. because they saw that that's how we acted. And so they were raised with that same kind of expectation. And that's what I mean is our elders showed us the things that they wanted us to see and how they wanted us to behave in the world Mm -hmm. and the confidence they wanted us to have. And I feel so blessed to have had that experience, to have been able to sit at the feet of my grandmother with her confidence as she was running her seamstress business, our grandmother, and owning several properties and being able to 
create a homestead for our extended family. Mm-hmm. As an adult, when I reflect on that, it's mind blowing. But that's how we rolled <laughs> because that's what I saw her do. Yeah. I yeah. didn't ever have an expectation to do anything else because I saw her have that opportunity. I saw how hard our grandfather worked yes. in order to fund all of the things that they were invested in. Yeah. I just remember the pride. I was in elementary school. I was in the fifth grade, and I had to go to the gym in my elementary school for something. And I walked in, and I saw Pop-Up there. Hmm. And I was like, what? It's happening. Well, he was walking in the school with the principal, and I just ran over to him and gave him a hug, and the principal's looking at him, going like, what's happening? And he said, this is my granddaughter. (laughs) And I said, what are you doing here? And he was giving the school a quote on refinishing the floor because of his floor company. Mm -hmm. And I just remember how proud I was that my grandfather was at my school and he was going to be doing business with them. Yeah. And like, it just filled me with like a lot of pride. So when I say that's just how we rolled and that's the things that my ancestors showed me, I just feel the privilege of having been at the feet of these people who just really created a life for our family. Through their hard work, through their entrepreneurship. Well, look at what Pop-Pop did in leaving Gastonia, North Carolina, setting things yep. up to bring in support, not only his family, but his wife's family as well. Like That's right. The fact that he broke out and left. Because if Pop-Pop didn't leave, well, one, would we be here necessarily in this form? But also, it would be very insular. And now, as adults, there's people across the world. You know, my father very much into the African tradition, so we had a heavy dose of that. But as I began to understand the African tradition, it was not that far off from what Nana and Pop-Pop did for us and the family. Oh, absolutely not. And we were a village. Mm -hmm. You know, we did not see each other every day. When we came together, it was a village. Yes. (laughs) One of the stretches forward, you know, as I think about my, my children, they're both into technology. My daughter is pursuing computer engineering and electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. She aspires to be an astronaut. Oh, wow. And that is totally feasible. And so the idea of how the possibility is always open as you can see yourself in these spaces. And she was calling me just a week ago because she was listening to Mae Jameson in her web talk and just how much it moved her. Mm. That's how you pass on the energy to move forward without fear is because a trailblazer made the way forward for you. Mm-hmm. And that lifts you up and lets you know that that's possible. Mm-hmm. That is remarkable to me. Yeah. And so as our families have moved across the world, I am anxious to see what the next generation of us do. Yes, as am I. Because the possibilities are endless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your daughter's looking to be an astronaut, and Afi's got four little girls. And I've been telling people, I said, look, it's just going to be one of these days, probably at the 2028 Olympics. They're going to be like, and this one won gold in this, and this one won gold in that. And they're going to do that classic shot of up in the bleachers, and there's the family. I just told everybody, I'm going to be waving like I told you, I told you, I told you. 
I see it all. It was like, because for people, particularly like my African-American friends growing up, it was just, it was a fantasy. It was imagination. And I'm like, no, it's tangible. I'm watching my family do it already. That's right. And I'm not saying that we have some magical life. Yeah. That's not what happens. No. We work towards those goals. We see it and we have tenaciousness. We have a sense of purpose and we move forward in that and lean into that. Yes. I mean, none of us had it easy, you know? Oh, no. People would look at it and be like, oh, y'all kind of had it easy. I'm like, no, no, no. Oh, no. It was not that. We didn't have it easy, but because of these examples, these exemplary examples of achievement, we had something to aspire to. So while it wasn't easy, at least for me, it wasn't backbreaking hard either. It didn't feel like there was no hope. It was like, you're going to earn this. And in this journey, you will see, but look what you can get from earning it. Because in anything we wanted to do, we were supported fully. Absolutely. We really were. And that's the other thing. It's being there and allowing for that curiosity to happen. Yeah. And then helping to nurture what those curiosities are, being observant, being present to see that. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing I would say that, when I think about our grandparents and specifically when I think about Nana, our grandmother, she was very observant. Yeah. And she would pick up on what your talent was mm-hmm. and call that out in you when she saw that happening. Yeah. So that was your thing, whatever that thing was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can see her eyes right now because Nana would look yeah. at you and you knew if you were doing great or you knew if you were messing up. Oh, absolutely. She didn't have to say a thing, just look at you, you know? People would mistake or misplace our confidence and our belief in who we are for arrogance. It's like it's not arrogance. It's an understanding absolutely of who you are because arrogance is putting down other people. That's right. And I have to say, I think that that has more to do with how the other person felt than how we actually are. Yeah. And gosh, I was just having this conversation a week ago with my almost adult children Mm -hmm. (laughs) about them coming into that realization That's how people see them, too. Yeah. That level of confidence, sometimes people read as arrogant. And they were curious about that. And I said, honey, what they are mistaking is that's your excellence showing up Mm -hmm. and your confidence in that excellence. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. They'll get used to it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That is right. You know, because it's that there was never any cowering. You know, sometimes people really want to challenge you, and I have to sometimes take pause Mm. so that I can gather myself calmly Mm. and respond assertively, helping them to understand that what they did was offensive or demeaning or whatever it is Mm -hmm. as they choose to step to me and expect for me to cower in some way. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen. Yes, no. Not for Lurleen Floyd's great. We are built from stronger stuff than that. Yes, yes. You know, so I can say that as I think about my colleagues, I am, they often ask me why I don't react when some crisis comes to bear Hmm. and why I seem to always be pretty calm under, you know, the pressure of a crisis. And I'm saying that, well, we're going to work our way through it. But I just think back about all of the challenges that we've seen our family go through, and that is exactly what they ended up doing. 
Yeah. Freaking out was never a solution. Mm-hmm. I agree. When I think about the different accomplishments that we've been able to achieve, it really is because we know that we have our family behind us. Yeah. Even if they're not standing next to us, we have them behind us. At a time now, you know, going through political upheaval and turmoil, dealing with a global pandemic, people are really recognizing the value that they had. Something that really struck me is very interesting. When the holidays would come around and Thanksgiving, Christmas, and people were like, oh, I got to get with my family. I don't know. I got to get with my family. Like, I'm not saying everything was always perfect, but mm-hmm. that thought never came across my mind. Like, what do you mean you don't want to get with your family? Because just being around the family, I vibrate and emanate from the energy that you all are just producing just from being in the room. When we were together, it was like this charged energy Mm -hmm. in the room all the time. And I felt it in a different way as a child because I didn't understand what it was. Mm. And I was excited to see my cousins. But when I think about how alive and vibrant our time together always was, I mean, we would go from dawn until we couldn't stay up any longer Mm -hmm. as kids, Mm -hmm. just being with each other, talking to each other, playing with each other. And the family, as we gathered together, you know, for all those holiday spaces and we listened to the stories and we danced to B.B. King and we, you know, and (laughs) we ate the food out of the kitchen and there was this energy and safety in that space, that sense of belonging and welcome and closeness. Now, looking where we're at in the state of the country, how do you feel about what steps need to be taken for the people? We're in new states of awareness. We're in new states of consciousness. The younger generation, your kids, my nephew, nieces, Jeffrey's kids, Keisha and Tanisha's kids, they're on something totally different than we were. The generation of our kids right now, they are more educated. Mm hmm. And they are definitely more self-aware. And I think that really just comes from being able to not only observe the world, but also they live in a world full of information sharing. Mm -hmm. The other part that you were asking me about was about the world and how I consider myself. As I've defined myself to other people, I consider myself an African-American because I know that my ancestry came from Africa. Mm-hmm. My culture is American because I've lived in the American culture for my entire life. But I also say that I'm an African-American who is having a black experience hmm. in America. Okay. Because I believe that the black experience is actually what people are reflecting on right now. You were saying that, you know, people are having a recognition and they're talking about this is a time of racial reckoning. Mm -hmm. And my question is, who's doing the reckoning? Mm. Because I already know how I have been treated or how people have wanted to treat me or assume that I am or whatever because of the way that I look, Mm -hmm. because of their understanding of who they think I am from a distance. Mm-hmm. And because of the place that they sit, especially people in dominant culture and believe that reality centers on their perception. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is that the black experience is how the institutionalized structure of how we have been treated as individuals in America. 
it's not about me as a human being because I'm not humanized in that. I am black, therefore I am treated in this way. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by it's a black experience. And what I have in common with others who look like me is that we know what that experience is like. And so that has also been part of my culture. We're talking about the complexity of black culture through the lens of one family, mine. Back to my father, Ademola, and sisters, Afi and Saida, and my brother, Atif, when we're sharing what life was like for us when we changed our names and the neighborhood reaction. It is a presumption that you don't do anything to bring shame upon the family. It's not as if there's a choice. Certainly, my mother's family was very much like, this is it. And we had that also in the civil rights movement, which, you know, I was like in NACP and I would be going to the demonstration. In demonstration, you had to have on a shirt and tie. You had to control yourself. I look at today, a white person my age would look at young black people and see these people never had the controls over them that was on their grandparents. There's certain things, just the way black people will actually go out in the street and look, asserting blackness and the different aesthetic standard that is a result of blackness. I know that a lot of the young white people, they are dealing with y'all more raw because you can be more raw. Black people have choices, your generation, and certainly all later. You have choices that we did not have. You know, you talk about the look of blackness. I don't know what that truly looks like for young folks right now, because I think a lot of it is this idea or an ideal in people's heads. And the things that I've seen in my personal life, just looking around at people, I'm like, are you feeling some kind of like, this is what I should do or what is actually raw? And I feel like a lot of it is a farce. And that well, that is the most annoying thing to me because I'm like, don't. I, I agree with you so wholeheartedly, Afi, but I think that's the whole thing when they talk about blackness and being African. I, like, okay, I can just say, especially coming from our family where where Baba says, like, there was a presumption not to bring shame on the family. I know that a lot of us did certain things that did not do certain things because of that kind of thing in mind, that it was unspoken word. But with that in mind, in terms of blackness, like, if you look at the complexity of our family, the complexity of black culture itself is so... You're not unable to put a pin on it and say, this is what black culture is. Like, for Afi to say, like, look, these things are confusing me, that makes sense to me because a lot of African-Americans are going to look at other African-Americans like, I don't know what that even means over there. But someone on the other side, the white people will be like, oh, I thought that was blackness. I thought y'all knew each other. You know what I mean? I think our culture is very, very appealing, but it's so complex within. There are so many people on different sides that we can't identify with. That, That leads me to this point. Really what it is is the color of the skin. It's just the color. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I can't identify with being called black right. because like you're saying, it's, go ahead. And no, no, exactly. So it's like, we can keep being like, oh yes, the blackness, the this, the that. Nah. Nah. <laughs> you can tell me something that happened down in Crenshaw. I can be like, well, I didn't experience that. Now I heard about it from a friend's first on. I didn't experience that. 
Now, yeah. then I can go around there and I can be like, hey, what's up? There's certain customs that I'm going to be like, okay, what's up? You say hello to each other. I say hello to almost everybody, unless you look like you're trying to hurt me. And then I'm a side eye you being like, I'm looking at you. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I think when it comes down to it, that's what people don't want. It's like, I don't want to be judged based off of the color of my skin, but then that's what we're doing and saying, okay, I got to identify because of this. It's like, you got to pick. I think like what you're saying is the thing is like from our side where we stand, we know that difference. But from the other side, they don't they don't know that difference. They don't see that. They just see the blanket statement of what they want to call black culture. But you're standing on this side like, no, I don't I, I don't feel that way. I don't I within. No, I know, but within us, we know it. I'm agreeing with you. Like we are yeah. on different sides of it. And I think that's from the other side for them to understand that like, look, it's a very complex idea to say this is African American culture because they're very, very different places. I agree, because for me, it really all started, especially when we moved to Maryland. I feel like when we moved to Maryland, I really was able to discern the differences of our family versus everybody else's families, and especially when we changed our names, because that took a good seven years for people to understand that my name was no longer Arica, and then to learn how to pronounce Saida. And then to understand, what do you mean? And then we started celebrating Kwanzaa. So it just was like, they were always like, what are you all doing now? What is this? What is that? And, you know, like, why now? And we were accused of being, I know, I'll speak for myself. I was accused of being a white girl for a very long time, especially from people that we grew up with who are now celebrating the fact that when they see me on TV, they're like, I grew up with her. I was like, yeah, don't you remember you called me a white girl? Because remember when we started celebrating Kwanzaa and they were like, oh, you don't believe in God? And it's like, okay, okay. Then to, you know, fast forward, not even a full five years, and then they're what? Baba, you were invited to speak at a Kwanzaa convention at the Baltimore Convention Mm. Center. You know what I mean? Like, I think because black people have been so marginalized, it's easy to group them all into one. What I feel like is the benefit now is that we're all seeing, hey, it's not just one group. There are a lot of different Mm -hmm. people. And just because I'm African-American doesn't mean I was raised poor. Doesn't mean I was on the Cosby show either. You know, doesn't mean Mm -hmm. I was raised like that either. And being in the entertainment industry, I have to say that what's been fascinating to me because I was like, okay, well, yeah, I'll do theater. And it wasn't until I saw Lisa Nicole Carson on ER that I was like, oh my God, I could actually be on TV because I'm not a skinny black woman. I'm a curvaceous one. And she represented all of us. But then what started happening in my career is that I would audition for roles that were not written for black women. And then they would end up casting me which made me say, oh, wait a minute, because of everything that was going on with us when we were growing up, I was constantly thinking, oh, God, why can't we just be like everybody else? And now for a long time, it's been like, oh, there are such benefits of being an A. Colonna and being raised the way I was because we're so different and we have a very expansive view on the world and on our society. And when I started getting cast in these other roles, I was like, here we are breaking ground again Mm -hmm. by not being limited. That's the thing about, I think our family, while we are very Afrocentric, we are not limited within it. We don't just recognize that that's the only experience that we can have. And we also do not accept bullshit and disrespect. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, before I even identified as a black person, I identified myself as a member of our family, like in Ekulona. Like that was a little more deeper because I knew 
people on the outside looked at me as black, but because of the things that my family exposed me to, the, the personalities and the attitudes, at a young age, I decided, like, this is an outside perception, and y'all gonna perceive me the way that you want to perceive me, but, you know, I'm, I'm me before I'm any of that color that you're going to try to... Exactly. Exactly. And I am me, and that's who you're going to deal with. Right. And so, so then they'll be like, oh, well, you're different. You know, like, I know I'm different from him, 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 her, him, her. I'm different from all you because I am me. Right. You weren't right about me, and that's okay. Which is what everybody should be, which is what everybody should be actually saying, I'm me. But because, on your point, Afi, because of, I will say it, social media and things like that, everybody's jumping on these bandwagons to say, oh, that's me, and then leaving those bandwagons to jump on another one. And a big part of a, a failure in our culture is like, I got guys I went to high school with that moved to Los Angeles and moved back within months because they don't want to act different. They can't leave that hood mentality or just certain kind of mentality behind. They feel like regardless of where they are in life and what they're doing, they have to act a yeah. certain way because they don't want that high school person to be like, what if they was here? They wouldn't respect right. that book. Right. You know what I mean? Those kind of ideas. and Bro. It's like they have to keep it real as if that one caricature of African-American and black culture, that one caricature that is the most authentic expression of who we are. But I remember when we changed our names and my friends asked me why we changed our names. And it's like to understand our African heritage. And these are black kids. Like, what are you talking about African heritage? And I'm like, your ancestors are from Africa. No, they're not. They would say that over and over again. And I was in, I was in second grade. I'm eight years old. And I realized then, oh, they are not with it. But I also, under, I also understood that their parents weren't telling them the things that our parents were. I mean, they, yeah. called, they called me African Bush Boogie. That was their nickname. That was their nickname. African Bush Boogie. They were calling me to make fun of me. Yeah, I got something very similar. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and fortunately, I can look past those things because I recognize they're blind and they're ignorant. So in order to get this game of flag football going, I'm going to overlook this. You are listening to No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekelona, or as my siblings would say, Kaliskimos. One of my many nicknames. Uh... We're talking to my family this episode. And in the first half of the show, you've heard from some of my cousins, some stories from my mother. You sat in on a conversation I have with my father and siblings. We're exploring the family and the purpose that fuels us. A purpose that was created long before any of us were born. A purpose handed down the generational line. Coming up, we talk with my sister and nephew who look at life in the United States from a view of expats. And we get more stories and lessons from my folks. Stay with us. No More Normal is brought to you by Your New Mexico Government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the New Mexico Local News Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts. Conversations with my family, Ademola, Saida, Afi, and Atif about what drives us and the love and support that helps us to develop. Here's my sister, Afi. I don't know if it was necessarily because of all the whole situation, the dynamic, or because of Khalil, but I was never in my mind had it that I was ever going to be that woman who was like, I have to ask you for X, Y, and Z. Never. I will always get what I want mm -hmm. for me. And yeah. like, 
I know. I remember I knew a lot of those women. They call them the ones who are like really smart, but they just wanted to get their MRS degree to tell him what to do so that he can mm. do whatever. And I was like, maybe they was just instilled in us that no, but it wasn't like because you're a girl. It was not because, because, because it was like, you're going to get an education. You're going to make decisions. You're going to get what right. you want. You want right. something, you decide. Mm-hmm. And it, that was it. Mm-hmm. That was it. Nobody could tell me. I didn't need any outside voices because I was told, I think within the womb, because I was probably listening to y'all's conversations. You were. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, I don't remember going through the name change. I was like, this is just how my life has always been. Yeah, because you were, you were maybe, uh, when you were, when it was official, you were maybe three. three. No, she was, uh, yeah, three. It got official over the summertime. To your point, Afi, I remember and I don't often have a lot of memories of childhood, but I remember when Baba picked me up and picked Janine up and said, y'all are going to college. And oh, yeah. I was I was seven, so Janine right. was six. And it was like, oh, okay. It was just assumed. And because yeah. we're women, no. It didn't have anything to do with it. And that was the good thing to do with it. I mean, like, like, you know how Baba, you said earlier, because of being because of your skin color, you weren't allowed to talk. They didn't expect you to talk. Being a female, especially in science classes growing up, mm-hmm. that was, they were like, oh, the, the boys would talk, boys would talk. I got to the point, I would just let them talk. I'm like, this is why that's stupid. It doesn't go based on what the teacher's saying. And the teacher was like, wait, hold on off. I'm like, no. And that's why that's dumb. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I'll sit over here and do this while I wait for y'all to catch up because y'all mm-hmm. clearly are not remembering the progression. But it was, it, we had that thing from being females because it was your mother mm-hmm. yes. because your mother insisted she would look at what was going on in the situation and say well why is it different for women yes yeah why is it different for girls yeah. Yeah. and i definitely did not want y'all to be of the the framework that you was going to have to be dealing with some low down people that was a major concern of mine well, and I knew that that meant that y'all had to be able to put them down quick. Because, Baba, I also mm-hmm. remember <laughs> when I was around 16 and, you know, dating age. And you... Dating age? Around the dating age. No, it's not. Okay, 18 well, is dating whatever, age. Whatever, whatever. Whatever. We were just saying, well, you know, you, you do that in your household. But it was like, okay, well, the <laughs> girls are going to maybe start dating. And you said to me and Janine again... Listen, I don't need you all to have no men coming up in here, boys coming up here that aren't worthy. And we were like, okay, Baba. And you said, do you want to know why? And we said, yes, Baba. You said, because if there's a man who messes with you in a way that I do not find appropriate, I will do what they do on that wonderful television show called Dynasty. They will go to their cars and they will put their key in the ignition and the car will blow up. (laughs) <laughs> so you must save their lives and do not pick any un, un some bad men. You have to date good men. That's we were right. like, That's okay, right. Baba. That's right. That, you have to do that. And so I want you to have that power as a human being. Like I, I think one of the reasons that there's a whole lot of explosion of this, the conspiracies and the militias and all that, because women white women, women, black women, women, Asian women in America are free. It's new to them as it is everybody, but it is a fact. And it has political consequences. 
as I look at this being demonstrated, you know, and I look at these guys, and I'm saying, okay, well, which one of you is really trouble because you are in cell? You can't get no girl to date you. Mm-hmm. She don't want to deal with you. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and well, hey, it's a reality. And then you look at what, what is happening in Western society, that as a result of the culmination of liberations, what popular group, what any group is going to accept oppression, open oppression today? It, they're just not going to do it. Now, there's some stuff that people would consider blackness that I don't want to have nothing to do with. I agree. You see, and I cannot have anything to do with because I'm African. And because I'm advocating for the fullness of life, and we have some black people, this dude, I think he was 21 years old, actually shot into the car where his children's mother and the bullet went in the the head of a 10-month-old or 8-month-old. It's raised a child now. But the dude, he gonna shoot into the car with his children in him? You see, this is the type of thing that makes me ashamed of being a man. But that's like a humanity thing. Yes. Yes. And and he doesn't have the sense. He's going to let his rage put these children's life at risk. my parents announced their engagement in 69, my mom's folks and my dad's folks were preparing to meet their future in-laws, right? Walking to the park in Manhattan, something peculiar began to happen to them. As they got closer, my paternal grandfather and my maternal grandmother began walking very slowly, as if they were taken aback by a distant memory. As they were approaching each other, they did the standard double takes, and soon they both let out a, oh, hey! Hey! It turns out they grew up together in Gastonia, North Carolina. In fact, my grandmother used to be running buddies with my great aunt when they were kids. Now, life was not easy for any of them back then. That hardship was a catalyst for my grandmother's escape. In 1925, at the age of 14, she ran away from home to New York City. About 10 years later, my grandfather fled for New Jersey. What they both did was find new land and territory for themselves and their families, as many of our relatives followed. This leaving for new lands and paving the way for family is continuing from the travels of my sister, Janine Renee, and her son, Jossie Falcon. I hopped on WhatsApp to talk with them in their relative countries to get an understanding of how their lives outside of the United States have changed their perspectives. So many people now are really focusing on what does it mean to be African-American and what have you here in the country? What does that mean to somebody who is of African-American descent but has been living in Spain for the last 20 years? How do they relate to that? Mm -hmm. Or does it mean anything? You two, the most well-traveled family members. And I just kind of wanted to talk to you about that, about your experiences in your travels and how that is really strengthened, deepened, changed your philosophy on life and, and particularly how you view the United States of America. So do you want to start mom or should I start? You should start. So growing up with you in particular as a parent and certain family members, I heard a lot of anti-America sentiment 
which was never really sat right with me because of like the indoctrination and like saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And you know, all my friends are from America. We've done all this amazing stuff, and like we have the best TV, and other countries are the worst. So whenever uh, you would say like anti-America stuff, I'd be like, oh, whatever, you know, red, white, and blue for life. But then as I left to go to Vietnam for the first time, and I guess a little bit in Panama and Costa Rica as well, but because it wasn't really my choice, I still felt kind of meh about it. But as I left to go to Vietnam, like a country I'd heard, like it was going to be like really like um, terrible quality of living, like poor people and like dirty and filthy. I had a blast. Like people treated me better than they treated me in America. It was exciting, like wholesome. People really treated me like family and they treated other people like family. It wasn't just me because I was an American. They just treated everyone the way I saw my family treat my family. And then I realized, hey, maybe America doesn't actually have all of it figured out. Because the way that we treat strangers is uh, it's horrible compared to the way I see other people in other countries treat complete strangers. Like, if I had been in some of the situations in Vietnam and Nepal in Baltimore, I don't know if I would have made it out. Like, a lot of the times, the kindness of strangers is what brought me through. And seeing that, I started to be like, hey, maybe, you know, my mom wasn't wrong. Maybe America does have a few flaws and then the more i talked to her and other people i learned about like all the atrocities we've committed and all the terrible things that america's done so i was like ooh mm-hmm. it actually might not be that wholesome so then when people ask me how i feel about what's going on in america right now of course i'm upset cuz like these are my people but america has always been kind of shit and we're, I think the big thing now is, like, we're just now starting to, like, see it and really rise up and fight for it. So I feel like it's been a long time coming, and I'm glad it's happening. But I don't not align myself with the African-American population just because I don't currently live there. But I also feel like it is a greater picture. I think all around the world, people are starting to, because of, like, the way you can communicate and see information instantly, rise up against things that they know in their heart are wrong. So it's not just... Uh, black people versus America thing. It's like a Muslim Chinese versus them thing. It's like all around the world, people are starting to rise up. So I'm glad as, as a species that we're starting to look at things differently. Mm-hmm. Janine, was the first time you went, you went overseas, you were a junior in high school. Yeah, 1988. You've been doing it ever since. Talk to me about like the first time you stepped foot outside of the country and, you know, w- what you took from that experience. Well, quite literally, I remember on a Thursday or a Friday, I was a poor black girl. So I was handing lunch tickets to somebody to get my lunch because I was poor and black and can't have the Jordache jeans or whatever, whatever series of things came with that in 1988. And literally less than a week later, I get on my very first plane and land in Peru. And I see people who are walking with their hands because they have no feet. And immediately I discover I have no concept of poverty. I'm seeing people hold their hand out who their eyes, I wouldn't even have vocabulary for it for months. Their eyes are sunken in from hunger. And so we get on a nine hour bus ride and we go to Huancayo, Peru where the indigenous Quechua people live. 
And I get off the bus and they run up to me and they're trying to wipe off my skin. And so here again, it's it's this moment where I'm American. I'm supposed to be reading that as racist, but they're being so kind and loving. Children and grandmothers are trying to rub off my skin to see if it's chocolate. And they're saying, you haven't been here for 5,000 years. You haven't been here for 5,000 years. So that's day one. Hmm. And I've got Baltimore County Public School Spanish to work with. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, my blackness means something completely different. My entire identity had to change because at that time, America was committing such atrocities in Peru that the Sendera Luminosa, the terrorist party, was kidnapping Americans. So the year after I left, Americans wouldn't even be allowed in Peru the next five years. Well, what did this terrorist party do to me? The students who were studying, we had to stop studying in school because the schools could have been bombed. Well, they, they come to my house one night and they said, we need you to know we are the terrorist party, but we will not harm you because you are African-American and we know what your country did to you. So understand at all times you will be safe. So all of this in a mouthful is it flipped. Mm-hmm. Everything about my African-Americanness became what made me safe, what made me whole, what made me revered, what made me seen. And I had to start dealing with what my country told me and what the world told me about myself from that moment on. Jossie, when we talked, you were kind of just brand new getting settled into where you're at now. And you were telling me about your friends from across the world and their reaction to the protests that were spurred from George Floyd's murder and the rise of BLM and people recognizing this, that all across the world, your friends were telling you about the, about the movements that were happening in France and Germany. Can you, can you go into that a little bit more? Oh, yeah, that was really amazing because I had met all these people throughout my travels. And, you know, like Vietnam is just where they went to travel to. So it ended up being like around the globe. I had people who were reaching out to me from Europe, from Australia, from Vietnam, from Japan. I had people from from Canada, even a couple of people from Mexico because they had known me as an African-American. They chose to, to apologize on behalf of like our entire country for what like me and my people have had to go through. But they were mainly apologizing for not realizing it earlier. Because a lot of times when uh, other countries think about black people, like they do think about the subjugation a little bit, but they mainly think about like how cool it is to be black, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But they were apologizing for not knowing what uh, they'd gone through. So then they would tell me about all of the Black Lives protests that they'd be going through in their home countries who have like, you know, like six. There's like eight black people in Denmark, but there would still be like huge people marching just against injustice. And it really warmed my heart. I was just on the phone with Tanisha and Keisha, our cousins, and her son, Stefan, lives in Germany, has not lived in the United States for some time. And he said this. He said, why would you be in a place that is a form of abuse to you in referring to the United States? When you hear about things that are happening here in the country and you look and you witness and you you discover and research injustices going on to people across the world. What do you really kind of draw upon when it comes to I'm not asking for solutions and stuff, but just for different ways for people to shift their consciousness so they can recognize 
oppression as oppression and people maybe find a way to set themselves free. Uh, Jossie, do you want to go first? I think I can. And then you can, you know, bring us back. Yeah. I think personally, yeah. from what I've observed, because I've seen oppression now in a lots of different circumstances, like from minor to major. But I think because humans are so adaptable and accepting, most people don't even see what's happening as oppression until they are exposed to it. So I think that's why social media and all of the internet stuff is so important. Because they're like, whoa, 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 you guys aren't like killed in the streets? Like this isn't normal? That's not cool. Mm. So I think people realizing what it is and then realizing that if they do something about it, it can change. Because I feel like getting used to it naturally just brings like a lot of hopelessness into the situation. So I feel like that's the main thing that's important yeah. is not standing for it and standing up for what you believe is right and seeing that there are yeah, ways no, I love to where people are hurt. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I do. No, I do have to recognize. I'm in. I'm in a different country than my son, but I do find that again, people of his generation, and I mean ten, twenty nations. If I t- talk to that many in a in a week, have similar perspectives as him. So I, I will preface what I'm saying with the fact that you know I'm on the heels of fifty. And our generation, what I would say is to make yourself supple. So, for example, I'm spending my entire Black History Month studying another culture in America. What is the narrative of the Chinese American, the Taiwanese American, the Irish American? Is there some commonality that would make me less identified, less strong, We've got strength, we've got power, we've got resilience. How can we bend to each other as Americans to look at what's larger? And what I'm finding is kind of what Jossie said is that, you know, oppression and um, humiliation, these things are not unique to the African-American experience. And I think reasonably so we're conditioned to believe that we are the exception but there is no culture i have lived in where one group wasn't committing an atrocity toward another group so to make it practical what i do when people ask me how can you get free what i say is do the thing you do with people who do not look like you do the thing you do with people who do not look like you so if you're a reader Read Hillbilly Elegy and find out the desperation of somebody who would storm the Capitol. If you like watching reality shows, watch the new one that's talking about people who are Asian or from Singapore. You see what I mean? If you, whatever it is that you do, choose another hue to do it in and see how they react. What is their story? What is their perspective? How can you contribute to the collective and relax the adrenaline of what it means to be an African-American? Mm-hmm. What fundamental things have changed within both of you as a result of your travels and being out and being abroad? And Well, for me, I think it's not going to be as impactful as my mom's because I've been traveling most of my like young adult independent life. So the time when you would have taken to forming these ideals, I've done it mm-hmm. mostly outside of America. But I remember before I left, I did have an idea of how I wanted my life to be. Then I like the American dream, you know, like a wife, you know, two kids, a job that's fun, you know, you know, like maybe a vacation once or twice a year. Yeah. 
And I was like, yeah, that's like how people are supposed to settle down. But now that I've been to all these different places and different countries, I realize like my life can be however I want it to be. And that can be like me and two kids like traveling around the world or like anything. It really just opened my mind to the possibilities because I feel like growing up in America, there's a lot of like set cultures and expectations for what you do with your family and your time. But realizing that you can do anything you want for me was pretty big. It doesn't really matter what anyone says. I can choose to do whatever I want, however I want. Have you had conversations with your friends in America about this type of thing? Yeah, yeah. I also think because of like social media and everything, it is getting a lot more popular to live like your own life. Like most of my friends as of right now don't think they're going to have kids and they're like excited to be in like open relationships and maybe not even get married or anything just because there's so many, you know, possibilities in life. And I think that's really freeing that no one's like, well, you don't want to, you know, have two kids in a white picket fence anymore. How weird. Mm. Everybody's just on board for whatever everybody wants to do. But I think being accepting is definitely one thing that my generation is really good at. Hey, man. Hey, how's it going, Jeff? Good. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. All right. Yes. All right. So I'm talking to my older cousin, Jeffrey Marshall, who lives back on the East Coast. And we're talking about family, you know, talking to everybody over the past week. Something that was kind of like a, the overarching kind of theme of the family was do nothing that brings shame upon the family. Is, is that something you felt growing up? It is something that continues to drive me to this day, to be quite honest. Being a father of three kids, one is an adult now, I haven't explicitly identified that as a primary goal to be a part of the family mm-hmm. as it was, you know, when we were coming up. Yeah. But yeah, that is a theme. I look back on my life, I look back on decisions that I made. And my primary decision-making paradigm was, is this going to bring shame or ill repute to my family? Absolutely. And to my family's name. You know, looking back and thinking about my life and talking to everybody, it seems that the primary motif was don't bring shame on the family. And maybe the secondary or tertiary in some cases was don't bring shame on the race. Don't bring shame on black folks. Because Oh yeah. Without, without a doubt. I mean, I'm going to cut you off only because I know exactly where you're going. Yeah. There's a clarity that if you want to break it down to one and one a, I don't even think the whole notion of, you know, not shaming the race would even be considered a B or two in that scenario. Mm -hmm. I think it all went hand in hand. Yeah. You know, if you did one, you did the other and both were unacceptable. Mm-hmm. You know, going through this latest transition from one president to the next and having various dialogues with children and friends and this and that and the other, their point of view with me was like, boy, you're, you seem to be very level headed and even about this whole thing when, you know, it just seems like everything is burning down. And I'm just like, look, man. This is resilience and survival and perseverance and carrying yourself in a certain way is just the way that I was brought up. It was just the way that we were all brought up. So whatever nonsense was going on, Mm -hmm. there was still a way and a direction that we were supposed to comport ourselves. Mm -hmm. That stays consistent regardless of what's going on. You know, we all lived very multicultural lives where all of us were exposed 
exposed to things. And I think many of us, particularly early on in our lives, were quite accustomed and used to being the only black person in the room. Our parents did that from our grandmother and grandfather pushing them to do that. So when it comes for us to kind of introduce ourselves into new spaces, to break ground, to break barriers, it was, in a sense, old hat to us, even if it was the first time. I could just recall so many times to where I'm entering a new situation that I've never been in, but I feel like epigenetically in my cells, I felt very comfortable, like I belonged. There was no second guessing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I thought about it yesterday, and I said to myself, yeah, man, you know, what's wild is that our family really are citizens of the world in the sense of, you know, many of us have been fortunate enough to travel different places, but even if we are quote unquote at home, to your point, walking into a room where, you know, everybody looks different or thinks different than we do, and sometimes both of those at the same time, Mm -hmm. there is a way in which we carry ourselves. And you're absolutely right. Our parents were the first to really literally and proverbially get out and stretch their legs. Yeah. And in stretching those legs, you know, they encountered, they were the first ones to encounter situations of walking into a room and there were certain looks, whatever those people may have thought. And they went in like they were supposed to go in with their head high and that I belong in here. And if there's any kind of issue with who should be in the room, it might be you yeah. <laughs> that shouldn't be here. Do you see any similarities, characteristics of our grandparents in your kids? And I ask that because my sister Afi's got four little girls right. and I'm watching them as they grow. They're from 10, 10 years old, all the way down sure. to three. And sure. I, I see my nephew who's 21 and I'm like, that's pop up right there. Oh my God. Yeah. That's yeah, Uncle yeah, Robert. Yeah. Oh my God. No, that's absolutely. Roz. absolutely. Absolutely. I, yes, I, I do completely. Our grandfather, you know, he didn't reach the heights of owning property and all that kind of stuff, but he did as far as he was concerned. And there was a quiet dignity and confidence. And we all were cared for very well Mm -hmm. based on his foundation. Mm -hmm. And not only do I see it in our grandparents, I see it in your father. My son, Amani, is the closest thing to your dad. My, (laughs) My son went to college and came back an intellectual. Mm-hmm. It is so eerie how he provides me with the same point of view that I get when I encounter your father, which is I got to make sure that I got my ducks in a row <laughs> before I step to this man. Yes. Because he's going to step to me with some science and I have to be ready for it. Yes. And let me tell you, I'll be honest with you. There, there are very few people in the world that I'm I'm thinking of at this moment that caused me to do that. Yeah. You know, I got to get my mind right. I gotta, I gotta be ready. Fortunately, my son has moved back to New York and I'm now back in New York. And so we get to see each other and we have lunch once a week and, you know, I sit up taller and straighten my back mm-hmm. and put my shoulders back because I'm, I got to be ready mm-hmm. because who knows what's going to come out of his mouth and what he wants to talk about or, or something that he's observed or researched. Yeah. And I don't want to be, you know, chasing behind. I, I got to be able to keep up. keep up. So absolutely. And then in terms of my daughters, my youngest daughter is absolutely positively a manifestation of our 
grandmother and my mother hmm. and your mother too, in the sense that, you know, like you said, loquacious, I mean, you know, she's the youngest, but don't tell her that yeah. <laughs> and don't tell her that her perspective is somehow smaller or belittled because the number of years that she's been here isn't the same as everybody else in the room. Yeah. And I admire that tremendously. I mean, my daughter Marley does not color outside the lines. And she's comfortable there. And I admire her for that because there's a strength in that. And there's a quiet strength and a quiet dignity. And coloring in between the lines doesn't mean that you kowtow. It just means that there's a sensibility about you that never wavers. That's our grandfather. Mm -hmm. That was our grandfather. Mm -hmm. And Dylan is our grandmother in the sense that there isn't a line that she Mm -hmm. won't cross. Mm -hmm. You know, if she sees one, the first thing she'll do is scratch it out. Yeah. (laughs) So that it will allow her to spread her wings and express herself as she sees fit. Yeah. And I couldn't be happier with that. Those are my children. And those are my children from my people. Thank you. Thank you so much. I I love you, you, Jeffrey. I love you too, man. I love you too. And you know what? Here's the thing in closing. We come from people. It is demanded that as black men, we express that to one another. Yes. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And that's everything. That's everything. You know, people need to know that. I love you. You love me. Say it out loud. That's right. right. All right, man. Be well. You too. Your New Mexico government is keeping you up to date with everything that happens at the Roundhouse in collaboration with New Mexico PBS and the Santa Fe Reporter. This week's guest is State Senator Harold Pope Jr., who was the first black state senator in New Mexico history. We're going to close everything out with some final words from my father, Ademola Ekulona. I want to say I am so proud that I am the father of all of my children. Because I'm just 74, but I know that you think you know what's going on in life when you're in about sixth grade, but you don't. It keeps stripping away. The onion has to be peeled, and every day is a little bit coming off. And you get down to it, and you see the real thing is about life, you got to raise up the children. That's it. And that's what they got all the groups from the Ku Klux Klan to the Israelis, to the Russians, to the people in Syria, to the people in South America, all the people in Latvia, every place. That's what's happening. You're raising up the children. If you put it at the top, you just got 25 years per child. And then if you live, you can watch them. Your work shows you the blessings that the children have that you have because you were able to see them functioning in the world. That's what the key thing is, that y'all are all functioning in the world. You're doing something. You ain't sitting up wasting your time and energy. So I, I give thanks. I give thanks. I could even take part in this. You never know. It's like I'm, I'm at the age where it's very clear to me mortality. And I said, well, at least I left a good track record. There ain't no bloody trail. I got a trail filled with these wonderful human beings my children, who are not going to be a drag on the society, you see, and who are actually going to move society higher. This is what it is. And that's why I want to say to all these about the generations, because I've seen three or four generations coming. And I say, oh, okay, well, the generation behind you is going to remind you of what you should be doing. 
the generation after that is going to do it. And so they are getting ready. The consequences of unpreparedness for environmental change is going to be something that my generation is going to lose control of because we're going to be homesick and y'all are going to have to do it. It's not a political thing for y'all. For us, it could be political, but for y'all, it's survival. I hope that people will see, as, as we do in Texas, when people saw that there was no water, that there was everybody was freezing, people started working together in some ways that they could. That's what's going to happen. What is exciting to me is that y'all are in control of it. There are things that you are doing that show that you're not just responding to events that happen in the environment, you're making the environment. And that's where epigenetics, because if you are able to integrate the activities of your life into the environment so that you are in correspondence, you feed the environment and the environment feeds you, that's what's going on. Like I said, the shortest month of the year is not enough to fit the breadth of black history. So we're going to continue with next week's show, where we look into black storytelling and black futures. How these stories shape narratives. We talk with some of the sculptors. Next week on No More Normal. I want to thank all of my family members. Well, for one, being my family and sharing their expertise on life. Some say you don't get to choose the family you have. If that's the case... I got very, very lucky. Special thanks to Jazztone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, Business School, Sundog, and Olaud Records for providing music for the show. Khaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawatt produced some of the show's themes. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It is produced and hosted by yours truly. Taylor Velasquez handles social media and helps with editing and story generation. While family bonds can be tricky at times and not every family dynamic is perfect, it is important to remember that they are the reason you are here. To that, I give honor and respect. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and for everyone here at No More Normal, thanks for listening. <laughs>